Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the cornerstone. I thank you for your steadfast love and your mercies that are new every morning. And as I stand here today, I can't help but think about the uncertainties in life that are coming our way. And I'm reminded of a song, and in the song it says, Come to me is what you said to me, but all I see is this angry sea. Beyond the boat where I think it's safe, but in you, God, I can face the waves. The storm is real, I feel, but so is who I'm living for. I walk on water with the Father, and I know that you will carry me to shore. God, in these moments of uncertainties, I pray that people would run to you and give you their anxieties, and that you would trade them for peace. God, I pray that you'd be the, with the students and the teachers as they go back to school, and they're not knowing what's going to happen, but they would rest in you. I pray that people that are dealing with storms would run to you, God, and help you make them, or let you make them stronger. God, thank you for the growth that's happened in my life in storms and chaos, and the peace that I feel and the joy that I feel in the middle of that because of you. Lord, be with this service, move in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our Lord. So... When I think about the songs we just sang, I'm reminded of the pattern that I tend to fall into, which is I'm reminded that Jesus is my cornerstone and he is my anchor in the storm. And then my pride begins to take over. And then I try to think that I can just do it all myself. And then I have to end up coming back running to him from far away, a far away place that I've led myself to. And I come running back to him. And then we sing the song, Run to the Father. And I'm reminded that my heart was in his sights long before my first breath. And then I come back to this place and remember how he's always with me. He's always with me. He's, he's in step. He, he's leading me. And then we can sing this song. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name 
forever. The only name worthy of singing this morning is his. And we're going to sing it loudly. Declaring that he is God, that he is the one who created us, the one who has given us the very breath in our lungs, the, ones who, 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 the one who absolutely holds us together. And what I'm reminded of is this reality that I can't even breathe without him. So why do I think that I can take on the world without him? Why do I think that I can fix all of my problems without him? I'm sorry, I'm having like an emotional moment up here this morning. But the worship, the songs this morning has just led me to just like, and I've already preached once this morning and, and like this passage plus the songs plus the Holy Spirit just, just doing his thing has brought me to such a humbling place this morning. And so these songs that we sing aren't just up here to, to, to show the, the talent of the band, and they are mighty talented, are they not? They are. But it's also to help set our hearts back on the one whom we are here to worship, and his name is Jesus Christ, amen? All right, I should probably look at my notes. All right. <laughs> so... Raise your hand if you have ever heard of a man called C.S. Lewis. Anybody? All right, so most people in the room. All right, so now raise your hand if you have ever heard of his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah, we got several. Some people put both hands up. Yeah, uh, so The Chronicles of Narnia series is an amazing series, an amazing novel that has so many allusions to the Christian life, has so many allusions to Jesus Christ himself. But there's one book in particular, one book in particular that has this character that at first you love to hate, and then by the end of the book, you realize, oh, that's me. And the book is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it's this character, and his name is Eustace. Everybody say Eustace. Eustace, Eustace is what we would call a bully, somewhat of a bully. Someone, somewhat of a conceited kid who picked on the Pevensey kids, who are the main characters of the story, if you've never, uh, if you've never read the books. Uh, he picked on them. Well, they had all these adventures to Narnia, and, which is this other world, and, and they knew Aslan, who is a lion, but who is the God character of this place. Well, through a series of events, Eustace finds himself in Narnia with the Pevensey kids. Except he's in denial about the whole thing. He doesn't believe in this place called Narnia. He doesn't believe it exists. He doesn't believe in a god lion called Aslan. He is literally immersed in the world itself and still is blind to the reality that's around him. So then he... They're on these series of adventures, which are amazing. I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to tell you all the adventures. You should just go read the books. They're, they're fantastic. But they find themselves on this island. And they're on this island. And in this island, there's this long valley that's just full of gold treasure. It's, it's the apple of your eye. You see this valley of treasure that nobody's claimed, and you want it. And guess who wanted it? Eustace. 
through warnings of no, don't touch that, don't do that, he decided to go himself to claim that treasure for himself. And because he did, he turned into a dragon. A big, scaly dragon. Could no longer speak English. He, he couldn't communicate to everybody else that he was, in fact, a dragon. And because of his pride, of denial of everything that was around him, because of his greed for wanting this, this treasure, he finds himself in this place where he is now a dragon. He's no longer a boy. He's, he's different from what he was, and nobody knows it. And now he finds himself in a place that he placed himself in. We can relate to Eustace. Because we, and because of our pride, find ourselves in places of our own making. Pride, in its most basic form, is us declaring our independence from God. It's saying that we don't need Him. Now, pride is the most, uh, I would say, it is the most, um, I guess, the most thematic thing of all of Scripture. It's the sin that undergirds everything you see in Scripture. Ever since the Garden of Eden, it finds itself in every story of the Bible that you see. C.J. Mahaney says this about pride. Pride not only appears to be the earliest sin, but is at the core of all sin. Pride is not just the earliest sin, but is at the core of all sin. So what's the big deal? Well, pride makes everything about you. My wealth, it was mine, all for me. My, my hard work, it's all mine. My bootstraps, I did that. My good decisions, mine. Your failing marriage, not my fault. The hole I've dug myself in, my circumstance. It makes everything about us and what it eventually does is lead to ruin the, the relationships of the people around you. That's what it ultimately will do. And it is very much the purpose, pride itself is very much the purpose that Jesus had to come die on the cross for our sins. It was this. Disunity is bred in pride. And Paul is no stranger to disunity. He addressed this topic specifically with the Corinthians when they were arguing of not whether or not they were going to follow Paul or follow Apollos. And he said, listen, it doesn't, it's not a different team that you're playing on. We're all on the same team. We're all striving for the same purpose. So he addressed that with them. And now with the Philippians, there's disunity among them. He even calls out uh, Euodia and Syntyche in chapter four and saying, you all need to get along. You all are arguing about this and it's causing disunity and it is not what we are called to do in the church. But your pride by not being able to say, I'm sorry, or not being able to lay yourself down and be humble is putting you in these positions that leads to division. That was what was happening. So Paul was addressing this. Well, how does he address it? Well, Jerry began to hit on it last week. 
in chapter one, verses 27 to the end of the chapter, he, he tells them, this is what it means to have unity. It is that you have, are of the same mind, that you are of the same love, and that you are of the same spirit, Holy Spirit. You are of the same mind. It is that you have to have a mindset of doing this. You must be of the same love. You must have feelings, emotional feelings for each other, and you must be in the same spirit. The Holy Spirit must be indwelling in all of you and driving you all in the same direction together. And when you have all three of those things, you will find unity. That's what Paul's saying. But in order to have unity, there's a, there's a certain word that comes and stands opposite of pride, and it's humility. Humility. There's three truths that come from this passage that we're going to dive into that all deal with humility. And the first one is be humble for the sake of unity. Be humble for the sake of unity. So we'll read verses one and two here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He is reiterating what he just said at the end of chapter one. It is not just something that he randomly uh, threw out there. We have to remember that the book of Philippians is a letter and the, the, the ideas flow through it the way, that, the way that his mind works. So he's still reiterating what he just said. If there is any encouragement in Christ, well, these are rhetorical clauses. He's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, well, is there? The answer is yes. And he's already said that. I'm in prison. But guess what? The gospel is still going out. While I'm in chains, the messenger is in chains. The message is not. So there's encouragement in Jesus Christ knowing that the gospel is still going out, even though I'm not going out. So this is a rhetorical clause. Yes, there's encouragement in Christ. Is there comfort from love? Yes, he's already said that in Philippians chapter one. He says, you all are partnering with me right now when there's not much to partner with. There's comfort from love knowing that you all are with me even in my imprisonment. That's what he says in chapter one. Is there any, if there's any participation in the spirit, well, is there? The answer is yes. Yes, there's participation in the spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers and is indwelling in the church in Philippi as well. So yes, he is most assuredly acting and participating in their lives. And then he says, with affection and sympathy. These words in their basic, in the basic Greek means every inward feeling that you have. Everything inside of you, if there's any of that, then complete my joy. The Philippians already bring him joy. He said this in Philippians chapter one. I keep referring back to Philippians chapter one because I'm making sure we are all on the same page. He has already said these things. The Philippians already bring him joy. As he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he says, now complete my joy, not only in your work in the church, but now in your unity. You bring me joy by the work that God is already doing in you. Now complete that joy by being unified, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now the word mind is one specific Greek word that's used. 
And it's used three times in this section. And just a general rule of thumb, when you are reading scripture, if a one word is used multiple times, it's pretty important. So this same Greek word is used three times in these two verses to help us to understand that this is, in fact, a mindset that we have to put ourselves into. Why? Because our feelings can betray us. Our hearts can betray us. I don't always feel like I want to agree with you. You ever heard that before? I don't think I want to. So having a mindset beforehand says that even in this situation, when it's going to be hard, when I may not want to agree with you, I've already said that I will have this mindset that we will be unified of the same mind, having the same love, being a full of cord and of one mind. That we will do that even on my off days. Because guess what? We're human beings and we're going to have off days, right? Yes. So we do that. This is what we do in marriage too. This is what we do when we say, hey, the next time this gets brought up in our marriage, this is how we're gonna handle it. Because I know my own heart and I know how I want to handle it. And it's not gonna benefit anybody doing it my way. <laughs> we must be in full of court together. We must do this, have a mindset of unity together. To give you an idea of what this kind of looks like as well is like I played baseball at Montreat College for four years. Now on a baseball team, you, you still have to have a mindset of unity on the team in order to win. Now in my specific team, we had a bunch of guys who were playing for themselves. We had a goal that we all wanted to reach by ourselves. We want to get to the show. We wanted to get to the big leagues. We wanted uh, to get to, in my case, I wanted to play for the Atlanta Braves, all right? That was my goal, was to play for the Atlanta Braves. I, it was probably, it, well, never mind, not probably. It was extremely unrealistic because I'm not there. And um, it was unrealistic. But I still, like, I, would, I would go for that. And our whole team was, a, was literally a bunch of guys who wanted that goal. We, wanted, we all wanted that goal of getting to the next level. So what does that mean? That means that we're gonna fight for ourselves. And you know what happened to our baseball team? We lost a lot of games. We did. I think only one of my four seasons did we even finish the season 500 because we cared only for ourselves we didn't care for the teammate next to us and therefore we didn't win. Oh, and none of us got drafted. <laughs> Just a side note. We didn't. We have to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's what we are called to do as the church. So how do we keep the unity? Humility. Humility, it's the laying down of our pride, laying down the I'm only here for myself, laying down this reality that I'm independent from God himself. Therefore, I'm independent on my own. It is laying that down. 
What does it look like? Verses three and four. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, here's this reality. The Philippians weren't necessarily getting along. As I said earlier, Paul has already called out specific names of people who were not getting along. And one can deduce this reality that if he is having to charge them and command them that you have to be unified, then they were starting to be not unified, right? So he's saying this because they weren't getting along. The word for selfish ambition that we see here is the same word he used in chapter one for rivalry when he was talking about the preachers who were preaching out of rivalry against him. But the word conceit here is the only time in scripture this word is used and its sole definition is vain glory. Vain glory. This first three command, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Does anybody else think that that sounds like an impossible thing to do? Nothing. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Do nothing out of vain glory. But in, what's that word? Humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Because you can't strive for vainglory and see other people as more significant than yourselves. You can't do that. So this command is to lay ourselves down to serve others. This is applied to every area of our life where there are relationships with other people. This goes into our homes, in our marriages, that we would lay ourselves down, that we would lay ourselves down considering the other person more significant, considering their needs before ours. And then when we begin to do that, then the arguments tend to change a little bit, don't they? Yes. When I'm not in this to see what I can get out of it, but I'm in it to serve, it changes the game. It changes your whole outlook. And in this time of quarantine, I really feel like this has been one of those times where everyone's stuck in their home or maybe you're at work and you're stuck in your offices and you get barely, get barely any interaction with other people. And I don't know about you guys, but when I'm in that place where I'm kind of stuck and I'm, and I'm kind of like a hermit away from people, then the voices in my head get going. And like I start listening to, to, to lies and I start going down a weird, uh, a really bad path of anxiety and depression because I'm not interacting with other people. I don't know if you all may get into that same place as I get into, but the voices in my head are much louder than any other voice sometimes. But you know what's one of the best ways to get away from those voices, to get outside of yourself, and that's to serve others. When you serve other people, you get out of your own sphere, you get out of your own head, and you step into the life of somebody else, considering them more significant, their needs more significant than yours. And then the, it seems like it all just goes away. 
That's why one of our values here at Grace are others before ourselves. We want to serve. We want to do that. We want to see this command in Philippians chapter 2 played out. So be humble for the sake of unity. And secondly, be humble because Jesus was. Verses five and six, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, just gonna give you a heads up. At this point, verses five through 11 are, are deeply theological. So we're gonna, we're gonna chew on some meat here uh, in, in, in this passage together, I'm just giving you a forewarning that we may dive deep for a second, but I promise you we'll come back up. Uh, but this particular spot in verse five, it's like Paul's tone just shifts. Paul, usually who's writing letters uh, to the churches, to the people he loves, now all of a sudden writes in a, in a rhythmic way and he writes a hymn. Verses five through 11 is actually a hymn in scripture because of the way that it's written. And it's very different from what Paul usually writes. Now, verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It must be said that this particular verse is ultimately one of the hardest passages in the Greek to translate to English because we really don't have the English words for what Paul is saying. It's very difficult to translate. But here's what we know about this passage. Is that if we see here, though he was in the form of God, we know that Jesus is in fact God. And when he came down and wrapped himself in human flesh, he was still fully God. That's what we know. Why? Because the to be verb in chapter six, which is the word was, is this word called hype argo, which means from the very beginning, he has always been God. And he will always be God. What he is saying here is that Jesus didn't use his position as God to gain more for himself. And this would have opposed any ideas that the gods in Philippi, the gods in the Greco-Roman world are gods that want more. They want to be served. They want more. They want more and more glory. But he's saying here that Jesus didn't use that position to do so. Paul even says about God himself in Acts chapter 17 that this is not a God who is served by human hands as if he needs something. He is not in it for more. He is not in it, in it to see that we serve him in this way because he doesn't need it. He did not use this position for that. Matter of fact, he did the opposite. What's it say in verse seven? But made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he's always been God, but didn't use his position to be served. Instead, emptied himself, made himself nothing, being born in the likeness of men, made himself a servant. This would have been opposite of anything that they could have fathomed that a God would do in Philippi. Why would he do this? Gods don't empty themselves. Gods don't make themselves nothing. Jesus did we must remember that Jesus entered our history not as Lord, 
but as a servant. There is a theory out there, a theological theory, that taking from verse seven, just verse seven, where it says that he emptied himself. There's this theory out there that's called the canonic theory. And this theory would claim that when Jesus came and wrapped himself in human flesh, that he emptied himself of his divinity. That when he came and became a man and was 100% human, that he was no longer 100% God. That's what the canonic theory states. Now, this is incorrect. It is incorrect theology. You see, Jesus did not empty himself of anything. He just emptied himself. And when he wrapped himself in human form, his 100% Godhood was still there. It was veiled. But he was 100% God and he is 100% man. And that theory, the canonic theory, is not supported anywhere else in scripture. It isn't. And I heard a story one time of someone who told it like this. Imagine with me, if you, if you will, there was an, an Indian chief, big headdress, big robe. When you walked into the tribe, you knew exactly who this person was. He's the chief. Well, in their tribe, there was a man who fell into a well. He fell into the well and, and the tribe did everything they possibly could. They, they lowered a rope for him, uh, but he couldn't get out. He was hurt. There was no way to get him out. So they, they called on the chief and said, chief, what do we do? The chief came over, looked at the situation and realized the only way to go or to get this man out is to go down into the well, pick him up and carry him out. And while there were able-bodied men in the tribe, the chief said, I'll do it. He took his headdress off, took his robe off, and climbed down the inside of the well to find the man, put the man over his shoulder, and climbed back out. The man was saved. Now let me ask you this question. Did the chief stop being chief because he took his headdress off? No. No, he was still chief. Everybody knew he was still chief. He merely took it off so that he could perform a task that nobody else could do to rescue someone. And then when he brought the man back out, he put his headdress back on, he put his robe back on and sat at the seat where he was always needing to be. And when I heard that story, I was like, whoa, that makes way more sense. Jesus would set down his crown his golden crown, he would put away his throne. He would leave it. He would leave the place of heaven, of eternal glory that has no uh, span of time at all. It is outside of all of that. And he would step down into our mess. He would step down into, into our stuff for us. But then we see here in verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see two different sides here. You have the God side of Jesus and you have the man side of Jesus. The God side of Jesus 
emptied himself. And then the man side of Jesus humbled himself. Those are the verbs that are used to describe Jesus in these two actions. As God, he emptied himself. And as man, he humbled himself. Now we cannot relate to the God part. We can't fathom what that would mean to do that. But we can fathom the human part, the man part. Why? Because Jesus contrasted Adam and we are representations of Adam. We, in our sinful state, reflect him. Adam was created in the image of God. Jesus existed in the form of God. Adam was tempted to be like God. Jesus did not grasp equality with God. Adam was enslaved to sin. Jesus became a slave. Adam died in disobedience. Jesus died in obedience. A complete contrast that Paul hits on so many times in Romans. This reality of the difference. If you look at this, is that list up here or is it just like that? Okay, so, so Jesus dying in obedience, Adam dying in disobedience. This reality that Adam was created in the image of God, Jesus existed in the form of God, we must understand that we fall in the Adam line of thinking. We do. We are created in the image of God. We are tempted to be like God. We can be enslaved to sin. And the wages of that sin is ultimately death. But, but, Jesus, Jesus came. You see, we could be left at the bottom of the well, unable to get ourselves out, unable to, to look around and see the other people around the well who cannot pull us out of the well. And so I praise God that Jesus came, emptied himself, wrapped himself in human flesh and through the likeness of men, made himself nothing, made himself a servant to come and get us, laid down his, his crown, his golden crown for a crown of thorns, laid aside his throne that he sat on and ruling all over the nations and traded it for a cross that he was hung up above everybody else and they watched him die. He literally went from the highest possible place you could be to the lowest possible place where we deserve to be. That was Jesus. That's what he did for us. And so we sing these songs, we sing this all praise the name of the Lord our God because of who he is, because of what he did for us and he laid himself down for us, amen? That's what Jesus did, that is who Jesus is. Jesus' obedience and humility leads to our change in heart. But in order to understand that, we must acknowledge our need for him through our humility. And lastly, be humble because his name is above all. Be humble because his name is above all. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And I'm just going to keep going so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. I shouldn't even have to preach anything after that. That should just be by itself. It's so, so rich, highly exalted. God highly exalted him, giving him the highest rank. There is nothing that supersedes him. He is the epitome of the highest order. He has, he has the highest name and no name is above him. He is before all. He is above all. And God bestowed on him, freely gave him the name that is above every name. But then we also see here that there is a physical obedience to this. There is a dropping of the knee. We will kneel in front of him. One day, that will actually happen. All of creation, it says here, uh, from heaven, uh, those who are on the earth and those who are under the earth. We have to understand too that when we understand those in heaven, that makes sense. Those on earth, that makes sense. Under the earth, that means that even in the pits of hell, the demons themselves will drop to their knees to declare that he is Lord. The demons that try to cause us to sin and tempt us, Satan himself, the, the chief deceiver, will one day bow his knee and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. His name is not above his. Satan could not hold a candle to Jesus. Ever. Ever. There's a physical obedience. Then there's a verbal one. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the reality. On that day, on that day of bowing the knee and then confessing with the tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, for those who are already in Christ, this will be a day of joy that we will be able to see him, that we'll be able to do this this way. But then let me also say, for those who are not in Christ, you too will bend the knee you too will declare Jesus as Lord. But this moment will not be a moment of joy. It will be one of shame and regret. That's the truth. That is the truth. And the gospel that we celebrate the gospel that is going out, even as Paul is in chains writing this letter, is the gospel that we continue to proclaim in this very place. And if you are in this room and you have not already laid yourself down and declared Jesus is Lord, then I pray that you do. I pray that today is that day that you say that I will bow the knee today. I will declare him Lord today with joy so that on that day, when I do it, it won't be too late. That's my prayer. This isn't a gospel that'll make your life better. This isn't a gospel that will just fix all the problems that you face. No, that's untrue. Even as believers, we face some of the worst sufferings. It's not a glamorous life. 
but it's a life worth living knowing that the one who made a way back to the Father is the one who sits on the throne right now. The one who emptied himself is the one who is in heaven and his crown is back on his head and he is sitting back on his throne and there is nothing that happens on this earth that he's not sovereign over. There's nothing out of his control. And it still hits me, this reality of, I can't even breathe without him. But yet I can try to fix all my problems without him. No, no, we can't step out of this place into our marriages at home, into our work tomorrow, into whatever we do without Jesus Christ. We cannot do it. And when we recognize this, we have to understand that this is a painful process. I'm going to finish the story of Eusis, and then I promise I'm done. So Eusis is a dragon, flying around, unable to speak, unable to tell what he, anybody what he is. He is finally able to communicate to the Pevensey kids by drawing in sand that I am, in fact, Eustace. And there's a part in the book where it says that he literally is trying to take the scales off himself. And he can't. So then this character shows up whose name is Aslan. Aslan, who is the lion. He's the, he is the God figure of the series. He is the one who created Narnia. So he comes up to Eustace. Eustace is broken. He has been brought low. He has been humbled. He's no longer the bully kid that you knew in the, in the first part of the book. He desperately wants out of these scales. And what Aslan does is he takes his claw, his lion claw, and scrapes the scales off of Eustace's body. And as you can imagine, it is painful. It is painful for Eustace. Why? Because the chipping away at our hearts is painful. Our natural bent is not to lay ourselves down. It's to guard ourselves. And coming to a place where we have to drop the knee and say, your will be done, not mine, every single day, in every single situation, it's painful. It's hard. And to that, I say for those who are in this place who are going through that process, which we all are, continuing to go through that process, keep on. Stay the course. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and we praise you. We lift up your name that is the name of that is above every other name. Jesus, we praise you for descending to us, laying aside your crown and your throne to wrap yourself in human flesh, to go to a cross. Which was the ultimate 
way of salvation. This is something that we could have never done, and you offer it to us freely. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room or if there's anyone who's watching on Facebook Live and they do not know you, I pray that today is the day that you send the Holy Spirit to come and transform them into a new creation, that you would bring them to a place of humility to say that you are, in fact, Lord. And help those of us who are believers, who trust in you, who, who look for your guidance, that every day we would be reminded that you are sovereign and we are not. You are so good. Help us as we go from here in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, whatever sphere we find ourselves in, allow us to lean on you and not ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.